You know, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. I think I was telling my in New York, and I was one of the only Jewish kids, and so my friends called me Little Heeb. <laughs> Little Heeb. That was my name. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Except the color of the hair. Well, good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful to see everybody. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. Hi, Deb. Deb, I haven't seen you in like a million years. Look at Beverly's. Do you know you're sitting next to Beverly? Yeah, that's, that's Deb <laughs> on purpose. You have no one to blame. So 1 Samuel 24, I'll tell you something. Saul, first king of Israel, hates David. He was demonized. I'm telling you, he was stirred up. There was a paranoia that went beyond reason. He's in hot pursuit of David over years, but he got distracted by people called the Philistines. They were stirring up trouble, so Saul had to go and deal with them. He did, and now we read what happens in 1 Samuel 24. It says, now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told by a spy probably, he was told saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Uh, a spy probably revealed to Saul David's whereabouts. He's at a place called En Gedi. Some of you have been there. So a name in print, somewhat hard to pronounce, becomes quite meaningful when you go to Israel. You should go before the Lord returns. Wonderful experience. When I read this text, it brings me back. It's an oasis in an otherwise dry, arid desert area. It's on the west coast of the Dead Sea. And Gedi means spring of the wild goat. There's a spring there. Some of us had occasion to climb up to it. It's beautiful. Water flows from on high, and it settles down beneath the spring of the wild goat. Why goat? Because there are these unusual goat-like creatures there. Their balance is amazing on this high ter mountainous terrain. They're called the ibex, I-B-E-X. When we go to Israel, if we're lucky, we get to see them. In almost every case, we get to see the ibex over there. Brings it alive. That's where David went to hide from Saul. Saul was his father-in-law. Terrible thing. David couldn't go home with his wife, Saul's daughter. He had to flee from his father-in-law. He sought refuge here because there are many caves, naturally occurring caves there. And many people could live in and hide in these caves. That's what's happening. And then when Saul found out, verse 2 tells us, he took 3,000 men, a little overkill. That's what paranoia does to you. He takes 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. He went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to, don't hate me, I'm just reading the text, to relieve himself. That's what inspired scripture has just told us. Um, do you have a Bible that renders this touchy phrase somewhat differently? What, what do you got, Rex? King James, let's hear. His feet. King James covers his feet. So in a prior class, less mature than you people, I hope, um, they decided to camp out on that phrase, covers his feet, and wanted to know lots more about that. So 
All I can tell you is they wore sandals in that day. Please use your imagination for the rest. You get the uh, picture. You might have the New King James, which says something about when to meet his needs. It's good, all the same. That's a bit of a euphemism from what, for what actually is happening. Okay, he ducked in to relieve himself. Now, here's what happened. Now, David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. At this point, according to the prior chapter, David had 600 men with him. Does this mean David and all 600 were in this cave? Possibly, but unlikely. We don't have to stretch it to that point. There were many caves there. David and some of his men could have been in one cave. Others of David's men could have been in others. Okay, he's in the back. They could see the entrance, but they could not be seen because they were in the inner dark recesses of the cave. If you can, if you can kind of get the, uh, the picture here. They were sitting in the inner recesses in the darkness, and Saul happens upon this cave. Was it a coincidence that Saul would seek to relieve himself? There's lots of caves there. In this particular cave, in which David and his men were hiding, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, it was no coincidence whatsoever. This was all orchestrated for a reason. You'll see it unfold here as we go through the text. But first, let me depart a little bit and talk to you about some laws of cleanliness as stipulated by God in what we call the Torah. If I say Torah, what does that mean to you? Yeah, first five books of the law of Moses. Torah means teaching or learning. So in the first five books, one of the books is Deuteronomy. It had some regulations for soldiers while in the camp on duty with regard to hygiene. I want to read you this. Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 to 14. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall have a spade among your tools. Soldiers to this day carry one. When I was in, we had a rucksack, they call it. You have a bunch of equipment in that deal. And we had something called an e-tool, an e-tool. It's a collapsible shovel. You need it when you're out in the field. It does different things. You can use it um, for irrigation purposes. You're out in a camp. It's raining. There's a water flow. And you want to dig little troughs so the water goes around your tent, not in it. Also, you use it to dig latrines out in the field. That's what God indicated was required here. So that you shall have a spade among your tools. It shall be with you when you sit down outside, and you shall dig with it and shall turn over your excrement. Yes, that's what it says before lunch. <laughs> right there. Why should all this take place? Well, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore, your camp must be holy. He must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Now, this being the case, Saul being Torah observant, would have gone apart from his soldiers to seek a private place to relieve himself, which means he would have been extremely vulnerable. That's what I'm saying. He would have gone outside the camp. He would have found a discreet place to meet his needs, you see. And if ever David's enemy was vulnerable, it was on this occasion. Well, David's men realized it and said this in verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, 
I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, there's a problem. We don't have any record of God saying that. Now, God may have said something like that to David with regard to his enemies in general. But nowhere in Scripture did God ever authorize David assassinating an anointed king, Saul. David's men misapplied this. Could I encourage you to be careful about who you're getting counsel from? Some people invoke the name of God in his word. Make sure they're doing it with accuracy or you're in trouble. The mere fact that someone tells you God said, or how about this one? God told me to tell you. Now, that could be happen, but that, that could happen, but I'd be real careful. Why in the world would God tell someone to tell you something instead of just telling you something? You get a lot of this on TV where someone says, I see someone out there in a blue shirt. Come on. God just told me to tell you to sell your motorcycle and send me the proceeds. Come on. Come on, guys. You don't have a God who does that. If you have Christ, you have a personal relationship. He'll speak to you. Sit at his feet. Study his word. If someone tells you this is what the Bible says, that's a wonderful thing. Make sure you check it out, though. There's a group in the New Testament. They lived in a place called Berea. Hence, they're called the Bereans. And it's said of them they were more noble-minded than others because though they listened respectfully to what their teachers had to say, nonetheless, they went home daily to search out the scriptures to see whether or not what they had heard was true. So be careful. David's men are about ready to lead him astray over here. Now, here's what David does. David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Now, some say, here's another crazy thing the Bible requires us to believe. How in the world could David have pulled this off? Well, these are people who don't know what they're talking about. I'll tell you how David was able to accomplish this. This is the garment they wore, undergarments, outer garments. There's a robe. Um, it's highly likely Saul first took off his robe and laid it aside so that it wouldn't be soiled. You know, men, the splatter effect. <laughs> Ask your wife. Yeah, she'll tell you. <clears throat> so he would have laid his robe aside, and it would have been quite easy for David to have access to it without Saul knowing what was going on. David cut off the edge of his robe. Doesn't that seem weird? Yeah, oh, because we're thousands of years removed from a custom which was not weird at all in that day. The hem of one's garment was like a, a signpost that said, this is who I am. This is the way you declared your place in society, your rank. Speaking of rank, if you see a soldier in a military uniform, you could discern his place in the organization. Is he a captain? Is he a major? Is he a sergeant? You look, you can see. This is the equivalent. People would display their status with regard to the hem of their garment. That's the way it is. may seem odd, but I'm sure we would seem odd to them. Now, David knew this, and in cutting off the edge of Saul's garment, he is in effect, here's what he's doing. He is saying to Saul, uh, you're disqualified from serving in the status of king. God is transferring his anointing uh, as king upon you to me. That's, in effect, what David is saying. Furthermore, he's doing something else. 
he is rendering Saul non-compliant with regard to worship. I'll tell you what I mean. In Deuteronomy 22:12, it says, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Tassel, fringes. You can see Jews doing this today, Orthodox Jews. It's a garment, a linen garment, white, rectangular shaped with a hole cut in it. You fit it over your head. Half of it falls on your front, half on the back, and on each corner are tassels, fringes. Some Orthodox Jews wear the whole garment out so you could see it. Others wear it under a shirt and uh, reveal only the fringes. You could see that. What are the fringes for? Numbers tell us it's simply to remind you to keep God's law. That's what it is. That's what Saul is wearing. That's what David cut off. He cut off one of the fringes on Saul's garments, but you're supposed to have one on the four corners. If you only have three fringes, you can't enter into worship. Saul is doing a bunch, I mean, David is doing a bunch of stuff in this otherwise what appears to be disconnected act. When I was a little Jewish kid, I wore these, and I went to what's called the yeshiva, which is a school of religious training. And so I would put on, we call them tzitzit, tzitzit, fringes. I put on this garment under a shirt, fringes hanging out. Then you show up for class, and the first thing in the morning, the rabbi comes in, leads you in prayers. And the rabbi, you don't, you don't mess with the rabbi. The rabbi's got a long beard, you know what I mean? And he always looks like he's had a bad day. <laughs> Big beard, like a brother right there. Brother, you're giving me the creeps. You're reminding me of my rabbi. I'm telling you right now. And so I'm, I'm in the class on this day. I forgot to put on my deal, my tzitzit. You know what I mean? You stand up, you use them in prayer. I thought, oh, no. And fortunately, he got distracted by kids who were worse than me on this particular day, so I skated. But anyway, this is like an important deal. And so David cuts it off. And so uh, this is a very symbolic thing with great significance. And it got to David. So here's what happened in verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe and all that it signified. It bothered him. The act really affected David because to David, he was doing things in his own hands. He has no right to replace a king anointed by God. He, he knew he was going to be the next anointed king, but he had to wait for God's timing. He had no right to mess around like this. And I want to tell you something else about this fringe and hem of the garment thing. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, the Lord is rebuking uh, the Jewish religious leaders called Pharisees. And he says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. That's what's spoken about. They're tzitzit. They're making them even longer as if to say, look at me, I'm hot stuff. And the Lord is saying, you're not so hot. So that's what's going on. And then do you remember this? It's recorded in Matthew 9. Verses 20 and on, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him, behind the Lord, touched the fringe of his cloak. Odd. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. Why didn't she touch his hand or even stoop and touch his foot? His garment, fringe of his garment, what's up? 
It's not so weird when you understand what it signifies. You know what she did in touching it? She's essentially saying, I accept and confirm the authority which you have. And it's an authority which exceeds that of my own religious leaders. I'm not touching the hem of their garment. I'm touching yours, Lord. Now, whether she fully understood Jesus, the son of God, I don't know. At this point, she surely knew him to be categorically different. And it was such an act of faith. The Lord says so. Your faith has made you well. And she was healed. So can you see the significance of what David did? Okay. He was bothered by what he did. And so he said to his men in verse 6, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And you might be saying, Come on, David, grow up, toughen up. Don't do all this stuff. Saul's a creep. Yes, that's true. He's a flawed human being. That's right. But he still was the anointed king of Israel. David is showing due respect. And David's respect, I think, for human authority was based on his respect for divine authority. And it must be the case with us. The Christian citizen must be the most respectful citizen of government. I didn't say you have to approve of it, vote for it, like it. But the Christian citizen must be the most respectful citizen. Why? Your response to human authority must be based on your response to divine authority. Please tell me who is the author of the institution of government. It's God. He created the institution of the family, institution of the church, and the institution of government. We have to show respect for it. When my boys were young, now they're older, forget it. They're out of control. I have no influence on them whatsoever. <laughs> But when they were younger and things were easier and I could threaten them and all the rest, I, I never would permit them to refer to any of our standing presidents by last name only. Whether I voted for them or not, it would have to be president. So I wanted to teach them respect for human authority. Why? Based on respect for divine authority. And nobody is saying you bow down to all things government requires of us. Now, here's what I mean. What if the government requires something of you, a Christian citizen, Contrary to the will of God, what are you going to do? Am I not saying give unconditional obedience to the government? I'm not saying that at all. I just said respect the government. You only owe unconditional obedience to God. So I'll give you a real example. In China, women are required to abort babies if they have too many. The government sets a limit on the size of the family. It's not many. After one, two... If you're pregnant with your third child, government says you have to abort the baby. Now, let's say you're a Christian in China. What are you going to do? You know that's not God's will. But a guy like Stuart is saying you've got to respect the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You respectfully choose to disobey government. Civil disobedience. There's a biblical basis for it. You look government in the eye and you respectfully say, government, with all due respect, I see what you're requiring me to do, but what you're requiring me to do runs Contrary to what my God requires me to do, I must obey him rather than you. Therefore, I respectfully choose not to obey, and I respectfully say I'm willing to accept the consequences of my disobedience. Do you know Christians in the world are being consequenced by doing what God wants them to do rather than human government? 
So respect doesn't mean unconditional obedience. There was an episode in the Bible where a, a person in governmental authority required that Jewish babies be killed. Remember this? Midwives kill them, kill the babies. They said, we can't do this. They chose not to. Not only did God not rebuke them, he rewarded them. That's civil disobedience. You must obey God rather than men. By the way, one of those uh, ladies was named Shifra, and that's the name of my youngest granddaughter, Shifra. In Hebrew, it means beauty, beautiful, beautiful. They were on the inside. Mine is beautiful on the inside and on the outside. She's cute. She's real cute. You have grandkids? Yeah. Mine is cuter. Yeah. So anyway, there is a case for civil disobedience. We can talk about that at greater length perhaps at one time. I'm not talking about blind obedience. Uh, uh, no, 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 no way. I'm talking about respect. You can respectfully decline to obey government and then live with the consequences thereof. So here David is bowing himself out of respect for Saul, though he realizes Saul is quite a flawed human being. Just to enhance my point, let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to Every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's what it says i didn't say honor what the king does even who the king is honor the one who occupies the governmental position ordained by god yes that's the requirement of the christian citizen now you say oh man when peter wrote this he didn't know what we're going through today yeah but he knew of a guy named nero he knew about these roman crazy people who were in authority then Oh, yeah, Peter understands the day in which we live. Well, now, verse 9, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Paranoid people surround themselves with folks who support their paranoia. And so Saul was hearing from all kinds of people. And David said, what is up? You're hearing from the wrong guys. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I'll not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. I had an opportunity, King Saul, to kill you, but I did not, I did not do that. You're the Lord's anointed. Hey, let me ask you a question. Aren't pastors and teachers in some sense also the Lord's anointed? So does this mean you can't criticize them? It doesn't mean that. It only means you can't kill them. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Now, you can't kill them. Not only can you criticize pastors and teachers, it's your responsibility. Unless you're in a cult. If you're in a cult, you've got to do whatever the cult leader says. This is not a cult. You know what you have to do? You've got to listen carefully to what we say. If you see something from us that is theologically, financially, or strategically askew, you have to bring it to our attention. Could that cost you something? Yeah. Too bad. You have to do the right thing, and doing the right thing doesn't always get the right results. Sometimes the person you criticize doesn't handle it well. Too bad. As long as you handle it well, meaning criticize with respect. That has happened to me sometimes here. It's magnificent. It's amazing how someone points out a wrongdoing that you have committed, 
and yet still preserves your worth as a person. It's like an art and a skill. We should all learn it. So you, so you want to respectfully point out what you're hearing. Listen, I want to tell you, the best of us here ha, has, uh, uh, the, uh, could possibly drift theologically. Better men than us have. Who's going to keep us in check? I'm looking at them right now. You know, there's a group of people in the New Testament. They lived in a place called Berea, so they're called Bereans. Did I share this with you already? Oh, I went through that? Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Holy Toledo. Yeah, but this is like the third time. I'm really glad I remember my name. Are you kidding me? Okay. Folks, we want to have the Berean attitude. So you want to listen respectfully, but you got to check out. Is your hearing consistent? Is, is what you're hearing consistent with Scripture? If it's not, you got to point it out. You say, Stuart, hey, listen, maybe it's just me. You don't need to play these games. Maybe I misunderstood what you said. But when you made this statement, I was just wondering if you could explain it more fully because, uh, you know, uh, I, I find it to be uh, it's a little hard to accept. That's a good way to do it. Uh, you know, a bad way would be, hey, Stuart, what kind of a moron are you? Yeah, it's a little on the edge. You know, it doesn't go over too good. So anyway, all right, so here's what happens. David, can, he's speaking to Saul, but respectfully, look, verse 11. Now, my father, he's not really his father. He's actually his father-in-law, but even so, this doesn't mean that. This is just a general title of respect. Older man from a younger man. Now, my father, see, indeed, the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and didn't kill you, no one perceived that there's no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, and though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but I won't seek my own revenge. Wow. We've got to pause and think about that. Somehow David overcame the natural human tendency to seek revenge. Somebody offends you or someone close to you. You don't have to be taught revenge. We're all PhDs at it. It comes naturally. Somehow David overcame his natural inclination and deferred to the justice of God. The Lord, let the Lord avenge me on you. You know why he did that? Somehow he realized that God would be a better justice maker. Sometimes in our quest to seek revenge, we may be too lenient or we may be too harsh. But God is not too anything. He's balanced. David deferred to... You know, in doing what David did, he's a grand illustration of a profound New Testament principle found in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Listen. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You've got two options. You take your own revenge or you leave room for the wrath of God. God is actually saying in a gentlemanly way, if you push me out of the way by your own intent to seek your own revenge, okay, have at it. You will not leave room for my wrath. Go ahead, do your own thing. But I think we should realize, as did David, God is a better justice maker. I do not think it's a sin to desire revenge. Maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think so. But I think it's a sin to seek it on your own. Big difference. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. David got this kind of 
figured out. He didn't want to crowd out God. He entrusted all this wrongdoing to Almighty God. Let God avenge me and the wrong that has been done to me. I, I won't do it. And so it goes on, verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. It's a proverb. I don't know where it comes from, but the point is, David is saying, why do you impugn my motives, King Saul? I had every opportunity to take your life, but did not. David is essentially saying, judge my character by my conduct, you see? And verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? Oh, man. David is essentially saying, you are the mighty king of Israel. Why in the world are you expending your energy and the kingdom's resources on pursuing one as lowly and non-threatening as me? I'm like a dead dog and like a single flea in comparison to you, great king with all your might and resources. He's trying to reason with a hitherto unreasonable, paranoid, demon-possessed dude. That's what he's saying right here. So verse 15, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, this is amazing. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? He just wants to make sure. Is this David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Wow, this looks like a sign of repentance, maybe. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for, I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You've declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. This is a marvelous turnabout. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. It was custom for the conqueror to kill all those connected with the one conquered. You remove all threat and the hope of that one's name and dynasty being continued. Saul therefore pleads, David, don't do it. Don't cut off my name from the house of Israel. David answers in verse 22, David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So, so I want to talk to you about something. <clears throat> Saul wept. Saul acknowledged David as the rightful king. Saul said, you're a better man than me. All this stuff. But I don't think David bought it. I don't think he bought it. Where did he go? Yeah, Saul went home. David didn't go home. David went back into the stronghold. Little sidelight, which stronghold? Some say Masada. Some of you have been to Masada. Masada is Hebrew for stronghold. It's just down the road from this place, En Gedi. Others say, no, he stayed at En Gedi. doesn't matter. It's just an inter interesting point. Main point, why didn't David go home? 
because Saul knew his address. That's why. So Saul knew where to find him. You say, David, what is your problem? Saul wept before. There was a show of emotion, and he verbalized good things. Folks, that's not enough. You know what the Bible says? Second uh, Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the sorrow, another word for that is repentance. For the repentance that is, according to the will of God, produces a repentance. <laughs> real sorrow produces real change is essentially what it says. Well, David hasn't really seen real change. He saw an emotional reaction and a verbalization of good things from Saul. But apparently, David was right because as we continue on in 1 Samuel and the weeks ahead, you'll see Saul lapsed right back to his demon, demonized paranoia once again. So have you been wronged by somebody, maybe regularly abused maybe? What does the Bible require of you? Well, this is a tough load. The Bible requires that you forgive, even the abuser. But hang in. Your reluctance to do so is probably based on your misunderstanding of what biblical forgiveness is. Some think forgiveness, some think forgiveness means tolerating the wrongdoing. No, no, no. That's called foolishness, not forgiveness. Nowhere in the Bible are we required to wear a kick me sign. But if you get kicked, the Bible does require that you forgive the kicker. Not that you make your, va your back available to the kicker again. So what does it mean to forgive? I make it simple. It means to let the abuser off your hook. That's what it means. Now, I know what you're saying. What in the world? I'm not going to do that. What about justice? Now, wait a second. To forgive means to let the abuser, the wrongdoer, the oppressor off your hook. I didn't say a thing about God's hook. That person is still very much on God's hook. You can't get that person off God's hook. That's the part that says, don't take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. I will repay, says the Lord. Forgiveness simply means you're going to let your father take care of things, not you. I was in the military a long time ago, and... Uh, I'm in a chapel service. That's where I went Sunday after Sunday, military chapel. And there was a guy. He asked me if I would lend him $20. I did. He was a friend, I thought. He said, I'll give it to you next Sunday. Okay. I see him next Sunday. He doesn't give me the $20. Okay. People forget. No big deal. Another time. I see him the following Sunday. We're in the same place. He doesn't sit near me. He doesn't say a word to me. I'm getting a little distracted now. We're supposed to worship God, and, but I can't. My mind is on this guy who owes me a debt. Week three, next Sunday. Nothing. I go to him. Everything okay? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, you know, you owe me $20. Do you need the money? You could have it. Oh, no, no, no. I'll get it to you next week. Week four, Nothing. I can't concentrate on worship, Bible study, none of that stuff. I just concentrate on this guy. I felt betrayed. Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but it wasn't the $20. <laughs> All you people with stereotypes. <laughs> it wasn't. It was the disloyalty. He was, a, he was supposed to be my friend. He gave me his word. And 
all the rest. But then something, I realized something. For 20 bucks, I'm letting this guy exact a pound of fl- emotional flesh. I can't even enter into worship. I'm so consumed by the indebtedness, yet unsatisfied, by this guy who told me he would pay me back. And then I suddenly realized, I'm going to forgive the debt. Brilliant. I'm going to let him off my hook. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean I'm going to lend him any more money. Doesn't mean I'm going to trust him. Doesn't mean he's my friend. Doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that I let him off my hook. Well, you know what that means when you forgive? I acknowledge that I'm going to be consequenced by the wrong you did to me. And I may be hurt by it for a long time to come. But I let you off my hook anyway. So when I see you across the room, I no longer see you as one who owes me a debt. I see you as someone I don't trust and I don't like. That's different. That's forgiveness. Well, I want to tell you when I did it, I got over it, not right away. I'll tell you why. You can be a true forgiver as an event. You can declare, I forgive this person. But it takes time to get a sense of emotional freedom from the forgiveness. It takes time. Because every time you see the person, oh, the anger still wells up. But I'm telling you, when that happens, you remind yourself, "Ah, but I let that person off my hook. That person's on your hook, God. But I let that person off my hook. You keep rehearsing what you've done, and uh, soon you'll find emotional freedom from the forgiveness. Now, if you don't forgive, can I point out to you the irrationality of it by sharing with you what someone said? said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Your lack of forgiveness has no effect on the other person. It's just killing you. Therefore, someone else said, forgiveness is like taking a solo flight to freedom. It's not about the wrongdoer. It's about you who've been wronged. Take a solo flight to freedom. Now, One of the reasons we're hesitant to forgive is that we confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. Reconciliation is bilateral, two parties. Forgiveness is unilateral. That's just you. You don't go to the abuser and say, I have granted you forgiveness, and I'll tell you why. Most abusers will say, well, I didn't even ask for it. You'll be victimized again. No, no, no. Forgiveness is you coming before God and saying, oh, God, that person hurt me. And I'll be consequenced by that person for I don't know how long to come. But I let that person off my hook. That person no longer owes me a debt. They owe you. I can't cancel out your debts against them, but I can cancel out mine. That's unilateral. Reconciliation is if... is when two people can get along, but it doesn't always work. That's why the Bible says, as far as you are able, be at peace with all men. God knows you're not going to be able to be at peace with all people. It takes two to tango. How can you reason together with an unreasonable person? Your heart breaks, but you can't make it happen. But you can forgive. That's a solo flight to freedom. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean toleration of the wrongdoing doesn't mean that. So that's what David did. That's what we are to do. You know why this is hard? I'll tell you why. Are you a, have you been forgiven by Almighty God? Forgiven ones ought to be forgiving ones. And why is it hard to do so? Because to be a forgiver... <laughs> 
is to try to be none less, to do none less than the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. That's a tall order. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The struggle to forgive is the struggle to be like Jesus. You think that's easy? That's why it's a struggle to forgive. It doesn't come naturally to you. Don't think you're the only one. It doesn't come natural to any of us. But I want to tell you something. God can enable us to do so. Let, let me just drive this home and then we'll leave. Uh, David overcame a huge, giant-sized challenge at one time. Do you remember his name? The giant-sized challenge he overcame in this chapter, in my opinion, is much bigger than Goliath. For Goliath, it took a stone and a slingshot. Boom. It's a big deal, but not that big a deal. This giant-sized challenge required that David overcome his normal, natural inclination to seek revenge. How do you do that without God's help? And you see what's happening to David while all these unfortunate, so-called unfortunate circumstances are befalling him? David, the shepherd boy, is being trained up to shepherd God's people Israel. Now, how can you be a shepherd of God's people? How can you govern others when you can't govern your own passions, lusts, instincts, and sinful inclinations? Many of the world's leaders are like this, unbridled, unrestrained, not fit to govern. How can you govern God's people when you can't govern what's going on on the inside? Now, in order to get to that point, it doesn't take place in seminary or through reading books or coming to Bible study. It takes place through the school of very hard knocks. David was probably on the run from Saul for 10 to 20 years. It's phenomenal. As we read through Samuel, it's hard to get that time frame. He was anointed way back here as king, but he didn't occupy the office for probably 20 years after. What's happening? What a waste of time. This is so unfortunate that David is going through this, being so unfairly treated. No way. God is training up the next king of Israel in the caves on the run. (laughs) That's how you get trained up. There's nothing that comes your way that your father doesn't intend to use for good. Now, we're not required to like it. But just know, your father's not asleep. Nothing took him by surprise, though it has taken you by surprise. He can use everything to reform you and me. You see, he's bringing us forth, and, uh, and we're going to see him face to face. And before we get there, there's some stuff that has to be pruned off, and I'm not going to cut it away. Therefore, he will use different vehicles by which that happens. It could be affliction. It could be hardship. It could be a layoff. It could be an accident. It could be a cancer diagnosis. It could be family upheaval. It could be someone mistreating you just as David was. All these terrible things we hate for good reason and don't want to experience. Our Father can use every single one of those as a vehicle to enhance our dependence on him and to shape us up so that we bear more fruit. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. All discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, In John's gospel, it says, uh, if you bear fruit, I'll prune you so you bear more fruit. Those who abide in me and I in them, I I prune them. I 
think, oh, boy, God, thanks. <laughs> Pruning, cut, I'll cut you. Cut you stuff like that. I feel, oh, man, I want you to take an interest in someone else's life. No, but don't you see, this all excess baggage. It's all stuff, God cutting. We don't need to carry it with us into eternity. So before we get there, God cuts it away. So what's happening to David is it's, it's outrageous. Yeah, it is. But God's making use of outrageous injustice to make a shepherd boy a shepherd, not of sheep, but of God's chosen people. Wow. And David will prove to be a great king, won't he? King David. David HaMelech, we call him David the great king. All right. We're in good hands, folks, no matter what comes our way. And you know what's good? God doesn't ask us permission to prune us. I'm just wondering, is it okay if I? No, because he knows the answer. No, no. What kid wants to go to the dentist, wants to get a vaccination? We just do it. We hope in the course of taking them to the dentist or the, get the shot, they're trusting us enough to know. Even though they don't fully comprehend, we hope they trust us enough to know we have their best interests at heart, and so too God does us. We, he calls us little children. As he dri- moves us through things, he hopes we trust him enough to know, even though we don't fully understand his ways, he's doing us doing it because he loves us and he's going to change us and he's conforming us to think about this to the image of his only begotten son. Are you kidding me? That is a great privilege. But it doesn't come through Bible study alone or any of that stuff. I wish it would. You just get some information and you're cool. No, but the transformation, that has to take place through living on planet Earth with guys like Saul. God uses them to bring about the transformation. So we're in good hands. Don't worry. And if there's someone you need to forgive, go home today and do it. Private. Sit in a chair. Talk to God. Oh, God, I've been hurt a lot. But I forgive that one as you have forgiven me. I let that person off my hook. That person has to get himself off your hook. Maybe you can bring yourself to say, please grant that person repentance as you did me. Please mercifully soften up that person's heart so that person asks, accepts your forgiveness and grace. But that's between you and that person. What's between you and me? I no longer consider that person as a debtor. I'll not expose myself to that person. I'll not be vulnerable. I won't tolerate the wrongdoing anymore. But I let that person off my hook. I'm telling you this. It's a solo flight to freedom. As a guy who spent a lot of years counseling folk and being counseled, one of the quickest roads to emotional well-being is don't harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your life. It'll kill you. Kills you. Gives you headaches. Keeps you from sleeping. Makes you overeat or not eat too much. I'm on the overeat side. It's not good. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Lord Jesus, thank you for the Bible, your word. It's very helpful. It's inspired. It profits us. Thank you for pulling us together out of this world into this place where we get together periodically simply to study your word. It's wonderful. And to live by it, to apply it. As you were with David, be with us. Do this work of reformation in our life. Make us to be new and more like you over time. We do trust you. We do trust you. We don't understand all your ways, but we trust you. Have your way, Lord Jesus. You own us. 
You bought us with a price. Have your way. We trust you. Make us to be more like you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. See you next time.